Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 107. Established in 2016, Speak and Destroy is the first podcast to feature interviews about Metallica. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Brody Utley, guitarist for Tech Death Metal Masters, Rivers of Nile. Remember, the best way to support this show is on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes called for my interview archives over the years, and also to go into Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast platform of choice is, and leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review. Those really help. You can follow the show on social media, subscribe on YouTube, follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. So here it is, my conversation with Brody Utley of Rivers of Nile. This is Speak and Destroy. I was born in 1991, so year of the Black Album, you know, uh, great year. Um, and uh, I, yeah, basically, uh, my dad was way into um, a lot of like 60s and 70s music. Um, my parents had me when they were a little bit older, so like my dad's 68 now, um, and uh, you know, he was you know born in 53, I guess. Um, so he was you know a young man for. Um, you know, a really important time in music, you know, the late sixties, early seventies, um, he got to see all that kind of happen right in front of him. So, um, you know, he had a huge record collection, uh, all the, like the best stuff from that era, whether it was, you know, uh, pop or blues or prog or, you know, whatever, he just, you know, always had it laying around the house. And, um, I think like my first memory of, you know, really like being moved by music, not just like seeing music as like sounds, you know, um, you know, that didn't really necessarily hold any like deep personal value to me. Um, probably the first band for that, that, that I connected with, I was probably maybe seven or eight. I got really into the beach boys. Um, you know, I heard like, um, I heard like, the, um, surfing USA, you know, like the guitar line coming in, and, uh, you know, I thought that was like the coolest thing ever, just like um, that, like kind of, you know, Chuck Berry style of, of blues guitar playing. And uh, that was like the first band that like I really, you know, got into, made my dad like get me their best of CD and stuff and just like played, played the hell out of it. And then, um, yeah, as I like kind of, you know, started realizing that I liked music, particularly like uh, particularly like guitar stuff, you know, like there's pictures of me as a kid holding like a tennis racket, you know, pretending it's a guitar, like all that stuff, you know. Um, I remember my dad showing me uh, a video for Inagata Davida by Iron Butterfly. 
um, you know, and it was like an extended version. It was a VHS tape and it was the non-radio version of the song. So it was like 15 minutes long and it featured like a solo section from each instrument, you know, and there's like this, you know, four minute long section of the guitar player with this like shiny red, you know, uh, guitar, just like making these squealing noises. It's not, me and my dad used to call it the elephant noise. Um, you know, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, you know, bright red, shiny guitar, crazy noises. And that's like pretty much when I was like, I want a guitar, you know, uh, mm. I want to play guitar. Um, How do I do that? How do I make that elephant noise? <laughs> exactly. So of course my dad does, uh, I guess the responsible thing. And he goes and he gets me a three quarter size classical guitar, which, you know, as a, uh, an eight or a nine year old, like is not necessarily the coolest thing ever because you just want to, you know, make crazy noises or whatever. So, um, yeah, it was like, I guess the, the catalyst for me wanting to actually get my first guitar was, um, was iron butterfly. Um, just that, that, that one video just kind of set it all off because there was a section in that where the drummer did this crazy solo and I was just like this is awesome like just the energy of that whole thing was just like so like hypnotizing to me like I just I thought it was the coolest thing ever you know um and yeah after... the uh the Slayer version of Inagata Devita you've heard that I imagine I've never actually heard that I didn't Whoa. know they that that's probably oh dude amazing, though. it's insane yeah it's from uh one of my it's my second favorite movie soundtrack ever the soundtrack to the film less than zero which was a movie with uh andrew mccarthy jamie gertz and robert downey jr yeah and uh the soundtrack has the bangles doing hazy shade of winter mm -hmm. which is incredible mm -hmm. poison covering kiss rock and roll all night mm -hmm. um slayer doing inagata devita Soundtrack's produced by Rick Rubin, by the way. Oh, okay. That's killer. Um, Roy Orbison doing Life Fades Away, written by Glenn Danzig. Yeah, okay. And the first Danzig song, uh, other than the Who Killed Marilyn single, the first oh. like Danzig solo song, because at that point, Rubin had signed Sam Hain, which was in the process of becoming Danzig. Mm -hmm. And he had Glenn write a song, the theme song to the movie, actually. It's called You and Me, Less Than Zero. It's credited to Glenn Danzig and the Power and Fury Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And Ruben's idea was originally to have the Power and Fury Orchestra be like his house band that he would, he would have various artists collaborate with. I think it right. ended up being the only song. Yeah. And uh, it was written with the intention that a woman would sing it. Mm -hmm. And Danzig recorded just a demo of it just to give to whoever ended up performing it and the record company and, and the film producers and everybody involved was like who's this singing the demo like this is great let's just keep this yeah. so it's this like weird outlier awesome danzig deep cut but yeah inagata devita on there i mean obviously i know the iron butterfly song but right yeah i'm i've, I've probably listened to the slayer version more so when yeah. i hear that song in my head it's the you slayer, slayer version it's a little faster but it's well i would hope so <laughs> yeah but i uh, but it, it but it's pretty faithful damn um, okay i'll have to check that out yeah i've i've believe it or not i've never heard i had no idea slayer cover that night and, and that's also very sick that rick rubin worked on that he's yeah. like anything that guy has to say i always like pay attention like doesn't really matter who he's talking to i just like listen to that guy talk because you know 
so much history and knowledge there. I just listened to a podcast um, of him on Marin where he was like talking about, you know, uh, bringing, you know, the Johnny Cash's like career resurgence towards the end of his life and like what it was like working with him during that time. And like, just like crazy, dude, crazy stories. Like I need, to, I need to listen to that episode. You know, you know, what's interesting is that the, the thing he did with Cash, he had done with Roy Orbison just a little bit before that was almost like the template for what he ended up doing with cash. And yeah, he had put Roy Orbison and Glenn Danzig in the studio together mm-hmm. and Danzig wrote, I think two songs for him. And, you know, Orbison at that time was just kind of like an oldies act, you know, right. yeah. and that really brought him back around. And then his next record was like huge like he had like a huge record towards the end of his life as a result of the Ruben thing and then yeah and then the cash the cash thing happened like almost I don't know maybe four or five years later but it was like the Roy Orbison thing with Ruben was that was kind of the template yeah yeah he was he was talking about I think he talked about Roy Orbison on that episode as well and he was saying similar to Roy, to Roy Orbison how you were saying he was just sort of known as an oldies act uh, up until that point uh he was saying basically the same thing about cash where like he said that at right before you know he had ended up working with cash um on what would you know go on to be like some of his most like you know successful and known stuff that he had done in his career cash was playing in like you know like dive bars basically you know like to like you know 50 80 people you know like he was like very much like you know not on his way out but like just like you know he was kind of just known as like this like more old oldies guy i guess at that point and like rick just you know went into all these details about like that whole process and like you know talked about how like cash's mind worked and like how he saw himself and like you know for being such you know for being johnny cash like some of the stuff that he was talking about was just like damn like i guess like you you know a lot of artists like you know are going to end up doubting themselves no matter what and being down on themselves no matter what like no matter how big their name gets you know that's still you know goes back to like a lot of these guys just have like issues with like confidence and stuff. And like, it seems like Rick was really able to like, you know, get shake, shake him up and like get him going again. But anyway, yeah, that's cra- I'll have to check out the Slayer version of Inagata DeVita though, because uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's kind of weird that I haven't heard that. So I definitely need to check that out, but yeah, that was, uh, that was what started it all, I guess, was just like the original version of that song. And then I kind of, you know, got into uh yeah, and then I got into like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Ozzy Osbourne and then Metallica after that, you know, and then kind of just kept getting going down the rabbit hole more and more and more, you know, but I guess originally it goes all goes back to the Beach Boys and Iron Butterfly for me. That's pretty awesome uh, because I, I think that you could actually follow a thread, you know, backwards reverse engineering what you do with Rivers because it's like, you know, there's some melodicism in there and that's the Beach Boys. And there's, uh, you know, some kind of that sort of adventurous lands musical landscape kind of thing, which would, which is like Iron Butterfly, you know, in a way. So um, those are really cool ingredients to, to see so far back in your history. So what was the first Metallica moment that you can remember? Like the first song you heard or the first video you saw or the first, the first time I remember like becoming aware of Metallica was, you know, um, and it wasn't after this first thing, like I didn't like get into them after this. It was a little bit later that I got into them, but I remember when I was like, 
I couldn't have been like any older than like seven or eight being at my grand, my grandmother's house. And like, they had like VH one on or something like that. It was, it was, it was like one of those programs from, from then. And like, I think they were playing, um, it, it may have been like a behind the music on the black album or something like that. And I just remember hearing like the intro to, uh, to enter Sandman, just the dad and dun, 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 and like, I didn't know, you know, and, and, as a side note, that same day, I also saw the uh, the music video for Progenies of the Great Apocalypse by Dima Borgir. So it was like a double dose of like extreme music for me. I was like kind of terrified of it at that point because I was so young. Um, but my first memory of Metallica was seeing them on, on MTV or VH1 at my grandma's house when I was just like a little kid. And like, you know, just like seeing the dudes and like, like kind of being fascinated by it, but like not, you know, not like uh, being re quite ready for it yet, I guess. And um, it wasn't until probably like sixth grade, I think, where um, at that point in my life, I was very like, I was kind of like trying to figure out who I was, you know, because like um, where I went to school, um, it was when we hit sixth grade, um, the two elementary schools from two different towns combined into one middle school. Um, and when I was in like sixth grade, you know, I was like, kind of just, like I said, searching for my identity. And I like, didn't really know, you know, I, I was kind of like did a, the skateboarding thing, but I also like to play sports. And then like, you know, I had short hair and like, you know, I was just, I was just trying to do all these different things, to like figure out who I was. And, uh, I played piano and I played saxophone, um, poorly, uh, but I was in, uh, the school band and, uh, there was a dude, um, who played guitar, uh, in the, in the school band. And like, you know, he was just like playing chords and stuff behind, you know, the, whatever it was that the rest of the, the, uh, the band was playing, but he had, um, he had a Gibson SG, he had a huge pedal board and he had like a PV bandit combo amp or something. And in between, uh, in between, you know, us playing these songs for the school band, he would, you know, throw the distortion on and start playing Metallica songs. And like, I didn't know what it was, but then when I, I heard him playing Enter Sand, I was like, I recognize that. Like, what is that? And like, he told me, you know, he told me, you know, it's Metallica. Like you, you should check this out. Like you, you'll probably like it, you know? And like, I was just like, you know, totally fascinated because uh, like I said, when I was like maybe seven or eight, my dad got me a classical guitar. I took some lessons on it. Didn't really click with me. Cause like, I realized that like, you had to like, you know, oh, you have to hold notes down and play. Like, it's not just like hitting it and making cool sounds come out, you know? And as a kid, I was very like, you know, turned off by that. You know, I was just like, oh, I, you know, this is hard. So like, I kind of put it away for a couple of years until I was like 12, I guess. And, uh, you know, after I saw this dude, like in real life playing, you know, this, you know, these, making these sounds on a guitar in front of me, I was like, all right, I got to, you know, I'm, I'm playing saxophone. I don't even like it. I'm not good at it. Like, I don't, you know, I can only learn so many like, you know, Beatles. I mean, love the Beatles, but like, I can only learn so many Beatles songs poorly on the piano. You know, like I want to try something new. So I actually, uh, you know, I sold my bike. I sold my PlayStation. I sold my Game Boy. I sold a bunch of my Pokemon cards and I went out <laughs> and it's kind of embarrassing because like, I, you know, I, I still, I'm in touch with this guy who's in the band. His name is, uh, his name's Andrew. And, uh, 
I, I saw him a couple of years ago and it's funny because I bought the same guitar he had, which like now as an adult is kind of like, yeah, that's kind of cringy, you know, but like, you know, I was a kid and I was just like, yeah. this is so sick. Like that's the awesome. coolest guitar ever. I bought the same exact guitar as him. We talked about it a couple of years ago. He came out to one of our shows and he thought that was amazing. I was like, dude, I was like, you, you know, like you're the guy that kind of like got me like yeah back you, you, th you think the show is cool i wouldn't be playing the show if it wasn't for you <laughs> dude straight up i mean like i probably would have just like poorly played saxophone for the rest of high school and then like you know got went to trade school or whatever you know like so uh, yeah it was like very much he was very much the catalyst for me to like stick my head back into that world and like really dive in and when i that time i really went all in on it you know like you know, and uh, I was a big fan. This kind of relates to Metallica because of Kirk and the wah pedal. But like I got a wah pedal with my first setup right away, like right off the bat. I got a guitar, an amp and a wah pedal because I thought that that sound was the coolest thing ever on a guitar. So it's just funny to me that I got a, I had to get a wah pedal like before <laughs> yeah. I even knew how to play it, you know. Um, but yeah, that that was uh, pretty much the catalyst for, you know, and then, you know, my dad, uh, my dad took me to Borders Books. Uh, which, uh, you know, I don't think they have those anymore, but he took me to Borders Books and I got the Black Album and I think I got Ride the Lightning. Um, and those were like the first two Metallica albums that uh, that I got. And I would just, you know, take them on the disc man to school every day, you know, pick which one I wanted to bring with me and just like jamming on the way to school, jamming on the way back, jamming at study hall and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it, dude. I love it. Uh, and I, I love that idea that, uh, you know, getting that guitar set up and everything like just immediately you know replaced everything for you right like like all the other hobbies all the other fascinations like nope this is the thing now yeah it was an obsession at that point grew my hair out you know did start wearing the t-shirts yeah like whole thing went all in <laughs> and what and catch me up then to because yeah you were born so you're 30 i i, I know that because you were born the year of the black album yep yep <laughs> um so where was Metallica at in their career around this time that you're like really getting into it? Uh, I mean, this probably would have been around like, Oh, probably like around Oh four. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm guessing like, I'm like, I remember. Yeah. So what, 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 what was going on in Oh four with them? I'm, I'm pretty bad with like my, like, my like two thousands era Metallica timeline. So what would have been happening around? Yeah, that oh, time? oh four would be uh, Saint Anger would be the the most recent record at that point. Okay, well that makes sense because I remember going to like Guitar Center with my dad and picking up like the ESP catalogs and seeing like you know you know Kirk like on the front cover and like all of his you know uh, models with uh, with ESP and LTD. Like I feel like there was like a heavy. I mean, I guess there's always like a heavy like Metallica presence, but like I felt like it was like extra intense then because I guess it was. Yeah, like just a couple of years, you know, after uh, St. Anger had came had come out. But yeah. Um, yeah, because St. Anger was summer of 2003. Um, OK. And then and then, yeah. And so they 2004, they would have still been on tour for that. And then uh, some kind of monster. Yes. Was actually at Sundance. January of four. Um, and then I, th I think it wasn't released until um, it might've been later that month. I actually don't know when it was released in theaters, but I remember, I remember seeing it at Sundance. It's the only time I've been to Sundance um, mm -hmm. in 2004, but uh, yeah, so that would have been contemporaneous with what they were doing. 
what were some of the first songs of theirs that you started figuring out? Um, I think one of the, well, I mean, I think uh, Enter Sandman was like the first one. And I think I like learned it incorrectly. Like I was just playing it how I like thought I, you know, how I thought it sounded, I guess. And then, you know, I, I like was playing it incorrectly. Like it didn't even sound close, but like I thought it did because like I was just going, you know, based on memory or whatever. Because I think I actually tried to like figure that out before I even had a copy of the CD. I was just trying to like reproduce what I heard the guy playing, you know, in the jazz band at school. And then uh, when I started taking lessons, um, I think me and my, my first guitar teacher, we did Enter Sandman, um, probably did, uh, probably did Fade to Black. I think Fade to Black was actually like one of the first official like guitar solos that I learned. Oh, right. Um, you know, like, I mean, I couldn't do the like, you know, I couldn't play that quite, you know, up to speed at that point, but like, it, it's a good solo, you know, to start with, like, uh, kind of as a, as a young player. Cause it's like, it's, it just sounds real good. It's real melodic and, and everything like that. So yeah, I think Fade to Black, uh, probably Enter Sandman, um, probably, yeah, for whom the bell tolls. I mean, you know, that the dun 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 all all that stuff is just like great, you know, great for for new players um to just like get stoked on like you know learning something then having it sound pretty sick, you know, in a in a hurry, I guess. So yeah, it was like I said, like Ride the Lightning and the Black album were like the two records that I like really dove into for a while, you know, in, in my early stages of, of being a guitar player. And then it wasn't until a little bit further down the road you know because like this was still before obviously before streaming and everything like that so like still had to go out and buy the cds right like i didn't have my family didn't have a great internet we always had like dial up and like really slow inter internet so i couldn't even really participate in uh you know the you know illegal downloading or whatever you know like i couldn't even do that because my internet was so so shot so i would have to wait to go get the cds but you know uh and justice for all and um and uh and master of puppets came a little bit later for me but the black album the black album was like the big one for me and uh black album ride the lightning for sure and obviously the black album is you know on everyone's minds in terms of metallica right now with the blacklist thing coming out and the the box set and all the celebrations you know biggest selling record of the SoundScan era, which March 91 being when they started, when Nielsen SoundScan started counting <laughs> sales, right. yeah. uh, you know, I mean, just a monumental and still, you know, selling thousands of copies a week in North America alone, which always blows my mind because you think like, first of all, you think about how few people are, are purchasing records, even in legal downloads, vinyl, compact discs, Yep. And then to think that like there's 2000 of those people every week in America that are like, you know what I need right now? I need the black album from Metallica from 1991. I'm going to go buy that. I don't, I don't own it or I used to own it or, or whatever. I mean, it blows my mind that it, it continues to do that. What do you think it is about that record that causes it to endure in such a big way and to cast such a, such a shadow over, I mean, you know, it's, it's, back in black it's led up one yep. four it's you know it's it's one of those records that is just 
you know, despite the fact that without the Black Album, Metallica would still be a massively influential band with a bunch of huge records. Mm-hmm. That record is just, it's insane <laughs> how yeah. big it is. Uh, what, what do you think it is about it? I mean, I think that it's it's just like such a pinnacle for, for so many things. Like, I mean, there's something that, you know, anyone, you know, I mean, if we're just talking about like, you know, the world of musicians and music and and just like real like hardcore fans of like you know heavy metal i mean there's so much that those people can take away from it you know as far as like you know it being like a pinnacle of like modern production at the time you know and like still i mean holds up and like you know all the live recordings from that era it's just like it's you know it sounds like the record i mean those the, those drum sounds you know it's like you listen to anything from that from that era live it's like you know they were just so dialed at that point you know, so like in the sense, it's like, you know, production wise, it's a pinnacle. So like you have, you know, professionals and, and fans of the genre that can look at it like that, you know, and then additionally, like, so that's like more for like the, the nerds. Right. But then like also, you know, it's it's highly accessible. Right. Like you have songs like um, you have songs like The Unforgiven and uh, Nothing Else Matters, you know, like my, you know, my girlfriend who doesn't even really like heavy metal very much. Like when I met her, like she had, uh, she had uh, like an orchestral version of uh, a bunch of, well, I guess it was, um, uh, and Nothing Else Matters, you know, I think it was that, the, the orchestral version that she had. It's like, you know, there's just songs on there that are like, you know, great for so many different, you know, groups of people, I guess, like, you know, whether it's like the starting musician who's like just getting into guitar music, you know, if you play, you know, uh, like a mid nineties death metal record with insane blast beats and double bass and fills and just like wall of sound for like, you know, a lot of like people who are just kind of getting into the genre, it sort of just like blows them away and goes over their head. Right. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't, but like, I feel like, you know, that record in particular, it just has, you know, it, it just has like such a good, like, it's such a good on-ramp to the genre, I guess, um, you know, and it's not, and it's like the songs aren't, you know, so extreme that um, it would like scare someone away. Um, but they're also like so well composed and like just, just simple enough in like the perfect way that like, it's still, you know, massively appealing to like the true fan of like heavy metal, but it's like also like, of this fascinating thing to like someone who like, you know, might not necessarily generally be into uh, the genre. Um, so like, I think it, it's just like, it's got so much, there's so much about it. That's just like universal, I guess, you know, um, trying to, trying to like, think if I can, if there's like, you know, a less wordy way I can put it, but you know, it's, it's just uh yeah, it's just a, f- a fucking great record. Like it's like it's it's simple in all of the best ways, and like not in 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 not simple in in all the best ways, right? You know, and it's just a landmark album for the band, for production, for their playing. I mean, for the era. I mean, them coming off of and Justice for All. You know, like watching those like Seattle '89 videos. You know, knowing what was to come next. Like it's just like I don't know that that's just like such a like a magical era in in that band's career you know i mean it it was in general but for me personally it's like that that's such a fascinating time in that band's career for me but i think to answer your question yeah i think it's i think it's just like 
it's just a per it's a perfectly put together record that that that's like you know designed to stand the test of time you know just like you know like you you you've mentioned some other records but like just like same as dark side of the moon from pink floyd right that album is like so weird you know in certain ways so that it still appeals to like the music critic i guess but so simple in other ways that it appears to like the guy who's just like going to work or whatever you know and i think that I think that the black album is like, it's, it's a record like that, you know, it has something for everybody and it's like a great on-ramp for, you know, you know, listeners and, you know, musicians alike, you know, for the genre. Absolutely, man. Well, well said. And, you know, you mentioned the production earlier and I, I tell this story on the podcast all the time, but uh, you know, I remember talking to my buddy Cece, the drummer for Black Veil Brides, who, who's actually been on the podcast but um, talking to him years ago when they were working with Bob Rock and, you know, a lot, a lot of conversations bands have with producers about tone and, and references and things like that when they're starting. Bob was asking CeCe early on, like, you know, what are your some of your favorite records in terms of drum sounds? What kind of drum sound and stuff do you want to go for? And CeCe was just like, uh, the Black Album? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's You know what I mean? Um, there, there is just something so magical about what was captured even from a production standpoint to say nothing of, of uh, you know, all of the, the obvious varying strengths from a songwriting standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it's just like, yeah, it's a fantastic record. I mean, I, and, and pr production wise, you know, being that, you know, I, I'm the guy in, in my band who, you know, handles most of the production stuff I record, you know, I guess like a little over half of the stuff that ends up on, uh, on our records I do all the you know guitars here at my place and a lot of the like uh, supplemental instrumentation so I'm like a real student of like production you know so it's, all that stuff is very fascinating to me and this is kind of a um, kind of a sidetrack a side note here but after you know it wasn't until um, I had been into Metallica for a long time and you know like you know fallen deeply in love with like the production on the Black Album that I realized that you know Bob Rock did Dr. Feelgood as well you know, who, um, you know, that that was another one of my favorite records, like coming up, I like got like real deep into Motley Crue. And, uh, you know, the sound on both of those records is just like enormous for the time, right? Like Dr. Feelgood, what was that? Was that 89? Um, I want to say Dr. Feelgood was 90. It was somewhere in there. It was right before the Black Album, though. And like, yeah, it was before can, the Black Album, for sure. Yeah. And you can, yeah, you I know mean, what I think? It, yeah, it was. Uh... I'm gonna look it up actually i think you're right it was 89 uh yeah in fact uh it celebrates its anniversary two days from now oh wow there august you go. 28th 1989 damn so yeah but like that you know i remember hearing you know because like i went through you know i i was like a huge guns and roses fan i like went through a big you know 80s phase a whole bunch of bands from the 80s and uh you know Motley Crue always could that record in particular always stuck out to me because of like just how heavy it was, you know, just like you know. Um, and it's funny that, like, yeah, that was like closely related, you know, production-wise, sonically to the black album, which is like another one of my favorite, you know, sounds on a record, a heavy metal record of all time. But yeah, just you know, uh, yeah, I've, I've dove, dove deep and, and done tons of investigating on all the stuff that went that went into that album. And, you know, I'll never say no. I'll never say no to uh, to anyone who wants to watch, you know, 
uh, a year, a year and a half in the life of Metallica, you know, it's like something that I I'll always, you know, no matter how many times I've seen it, I just like love, love watching those dudes just, you know, being, being young men firing on all cylinders, you know, getting into it with one another and, you know, uh, and hanging with one another and having a good time with one another and just, you know, just really being like a, just being a band, you know, like that's like, I think for, um, I think for, you know, as uh, changed as the world is now, you know, and how so many bands are just like, kind of like all their members are like scattered all over the country or the planet, even, you know, I still think, uh, in, you know, deep down inside, I'm still very much in love with the idea of like the band, like the, the band dynamic, just like having your dudes, you know, um, ha having the people, you know, that, that you work with and can depend on and are your friends and like you go through the shit together. And you also go through, you know, the high points together as well. And it makes it all the more worth it, you know, because you've been it together, you know, for so long and, and been through so much together. And I think that, you know, a lot of that kind of goes back to, you know, watching, uh, watching those like those Metallica videos, you know, like I, that's my favorite part. Like I will I, I just like love watching those dudes just like talk about whatever, just like in the studio. You know, I, I think that, you know, that's like a. Uh, a pretty underrated underrated part of like you know the band dynamic is just like you know seeing how the seeing how you know bands interact with with one another like you, you could tell a lot about how you know comfortable a group of guys are with each other you know based on just how they're kind of like shooting the shit you know and like i i think that it, it's fascinating to just like what you know just watch all that take place because you know in some way or another it's going into whatever music it is that they're making so um anyway yeah i think i lost i lost track of what no in fact was. um i absolutely wholeheartedly agree and believe it or not i think in more than 100 episodes you're the first guest to really address that and as you're talking about it it's making me think you know that is a huge part of what has resonated with me for so long about this band, because there are, you know, there are lots of bands of lots of different genres that I love, including other metal bands. Uh, you know, I, I say often that Megadeth was the band that got me into heavy metal and still one of my all time favorite bands. Yeah. But there is something about, and, and I would include Mustaine in this by extension. Right. There is something about, yeah, just the, the inner workings, the conversations, the attitudes, the origin stories. And I suppose it has a lot to do with the almost unparalleled access that these guys have given us into their interior lives, you know, right. without sacrificing too much, you know, because we don't see, you know, Hetfield and his wife at home or anything. Right. Nor do I think we should. Right. But we do get so much of who they are and what informs and shapes their music. And a lot of it has been, you know, for better or worse, I realize uh, instructive for me, you know, even like you, you mentioned a year and a half in the life, I always think about this scene and I don't say this, th this was important to me even before Newstead had left the band. So I, I'm not saying this anything to do with him leaving, but just as a life lesson in general, there's a great moment in there and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but, where he, but he's like backstage and there's all this catering and it's all luxurious and they're at their absolute peak. You know, it's the Black Album Tour and he's like making sandwiches from hospitality to take back to his hotel room and whoever's filming him is like, Jason, what are you doing? You know, like you 
wait, what are you making these sandwiches to bring back to the room? And he was just like, nothing lasts forever, man. You know, it's just, there's just like this great attitude and and it's very blue collar and very, you know, I know he's Newstead's from Michigan and I'm from Indiana and, and, uh, you know, Hetfield obviously comes from that, from that sort of a background as well. But I just love that, especially as they were blowing up just as we were leaving the hair metal era and there was a particular era of rap that, that was just all about celebrating excess materialism hedonism and was just like look you know look how much sex i'm having look how much money i'm making look how much extravagance i'm just wasting on everything and i there was something about how even at their peak not to say that there wasn't a certain bacchanalia happening behind the scenes with metallica but it wasn't this like same celebration of like look how ostentatiously we're setting so you know lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills or whatever right i just yeah i just always had so much respect for the way that they carried themselves and that whole idea of you know sign every autograph take every picture meet every fan yeah but again getting all the way back to what you were saying i think is so insightful is, is seeing the interworkings of their relationships with each other because these are adult men now, you know, parents and, and some of them have been married more than once. And, you know, they've, they've gone through things that we all go through in life. Yeah. And yet the relationship with one another, you know, when you look at James and Lars in particular, yeah, that that has endured for 40 years, mm-hmm. you know, these two people who are very different in a lot of ways, but obviously share some important fundamental things that have tied them to one another forever. You know, there's a great, great moment during their hall of fame induction where uh, James, you know, like publicly thanks Lars for, you know, getting all this going and he like picks him up in this bear hug and just, it, 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 it makes me emotional talking about it, thinking about yeah. the look on both of their faces in that moment. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's so relatable for all. And because the other thing about the band, and this includes Cliff and Newstead and Robert, you know, historically, like there's, there's always been very different personalities in the band. So I feel like everybody, no matter what kind of person you are there, there's someone in Metallica that you can relate to, or there's aspects of different members that you relate to and so on. Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, I think part of the magic, I think you really hit on something that of course it's the music, of course it's the live show, of course it's the records, but that's a really big part of it too. And I think they're almost singular in, in the way that they've let us in. Yeah, man. And I mean, like, it's just like, you know, all that. And then just, you know, yeah, just seeing that they all have this like, you know, mutual, mutual respect you know, for this thing that they're doing, like, like you were talking about, like the, the age of like excess and stuff that like, you know, the black album came out on the heels of, you know, they Metallica, like, you know, of course, like they were known for like, you know, they, they, they drank and partied and stuff, but like they, they, they treated that, they treated that shit like a, the job, like this is, this is what we do, you know, like, and uh, I don't know, just like seeing, you know, you know, how long they, they did the respect for that thing that they do together, no matter like what goes on in their personal lives, like they, they've, you know, fought about it and, and worked it out and everything. But like, it's all for this, like, this thing that they started together, like so long ago. And like, I'm still, yeah, like, I, 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 I 
I love that, you know, like I, and uh, you know, the bass player of my band, Adam, you know, he and I've been playing music together since I was 16, you know, we've been in two band, two bands together and like, you know, it's obviously way different, but like, I, I, you know, I love that, that like he and I, you know, started together in a lot of ways and like have kind of, you know, become better players and musicians and gone through all these various phases of our lives together you know, um, and, you know, moved apart. And like, we still have this, this thing and this kind of like silent, unspoken understanding with one another where like, we can be in a room with each other and just look at each other and like, know exactly what the other guy is thinking. Same thing, you know, on stage, you know, that goes for like stage chemistry. Cause, you know, and this is something that, you know, uh, that, you know, Wes, Wes, how can I have talked about a lot? Um, is that is the fact that like so many bands these days are just sort of like revolving doors of members which is like you can get a guy who can get up there and kill it you know like for all intents and purposes but like there is something special to be said about like you know having like a like a like a core lineup of guys that just like stick together you kind of like learn each other's like you know uh small inconsistencies and how to kind of like compensate for like this guy if he's dragging or that guy if he's rushing or you know know what's going on in each other's you know heads without having to like you know walk up to each other and scream into each other's ear on stage and, well what's going on you know like it's just all that goes back to like you know band chemistry i guess and like i think yeah, going back to what I said, like, yeah, I think that that's like my favorite, that's my favorite shit to watch for like, you know, metallic, like in the Metallica, you know, videos and in, you know, most fans videos, I've always loved the behind the scenes, just the people in the band hanging out with each other, you know, like I grew up watching behind the musics of, you know, tons of bands, whether it was Led Zeppelin or Badfinger or Pink Floyd or the Moody Blues, you know, like I used to watch these VHS tapes that my dad had laying around just of like these bands just like kind of interacting with one another and, you know, talking about life in the band and talking about like the industry and how it all works. And like, I think all that stuff and all the Metallica stuff that I watched growing up and, and still continue to watch, um, I don't know. I, I feel like it kind of like warmed me up in a certain way for like what I was getting into, you know, and like taught me, you know, taught, taught me, you know, a decent bit uh, about what it is that, you know, like what it is that I was getting into before I even, you know, experienced a lot of it. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, seeing guys, you know, the Metallica guys, you know, fighting it out and having these like major issues with one another, you know, uh, you know, especially on some kind of monster, like some of that stuff just feels like you shouldn't even be watching it. It's so intense. You know what I mean? But it's just like, these is, this is like the biggest heavy metal band on earth. And like, they're just like having trouble, you know, just like normal people, you know, and like, but they, they work through it because they have this common goal and like, it's, you know, it makes them, makes them a stronger group of guys, you know, going forward. So yeah, it's all, uh, it's all connected. And, and I, and I really love, I really love that that side of like the uh, of documenting, you know, music history, like just the, the side of things where it's just like people in the bands just being people. I think it's so interesting. Absolutely. And, and, and it does. You know, I, I feel like. Whether or not you're. Part of a multimillion dollar operation that all these people depend on. Yeah. That we all can, whether you're, whether it's a rock band dynamic, whether it's a business, a workplace, 
a family dynamic. We can all relate to a lot of that stuff. That's just, you know, relationships. And especially when the creative arts are involved in the mix of art and commerce. Right. And yeah. And I think that's, what's so profound about it. You know, uh, Joe Berlinger, who co-directed that movie with Bruce Sanofsky, who's uh, who passed away. He wrote a really cool book, which is actually a quick read. I read it in a, a, you know, flight from the West coast to the East coast once, but it's all about the making of that film from the filmmaker's perspective. And it turns out that the two of them as a directing duo, having made the paradise lost movies together and, and so on, they were going through their own internal kind of some kind of monster stuff yeah. and uh, benefiting from the work that was happening with Phil Toll and, and all this stuff as they're documenting it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was help. It, it was helping them too. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I think that's, um, it, it's pretty incredible how relatable that can be. And I suppose in a lot of ways, it's like a lot of great music where, you know, someone writes a song inspired by this or that in their life and all of these other people all around the world of all different generations end up relating to that song or that film or whatever it is despite not having a direct connection to whatever that original experience was but feeling something similar or getting something out of yeah, it i mean that experience is the human experience i guess yeah like there are certain albums that come that come along you know throughout history every now and again that just like yeah they just like strike a chord with like the human condition i guess you know um where the the kind of like message is is painted in a way that's you know artful enough to be you know considered the sort of high art but like also like you know relatable and understandable enough that it's like like you know like i said earlier like that the the average joe just like going going to work can like connect with it you know it's like yeah and that it it, it happens you know rarely but like when it happens it is it is big you know what i mean and those albums are the albums that like you know that uh yeah stand the test of time and like the, the black album is is uh yeah like the the first album that i think of you know when, when thinking of records like that along with the you know the, the records that you mentioned and you know dark side of the moon and all that you know those are those those are those records you know for sure and i suppose that's a big part of of why they endure uh so what are you know and you touched on this a little bit already but what are some of the things that you think you've learned in terms of lessons from watching those interband dynamics and and also you know from a i guess it's a three-pronged question yeah uh you know the interpersonal dynamics the production side and the creative songwriting side yeah i mean you know just uh I think I think a lot of a lot of the stuff that that you know I took away from um you know particularly like some kind of monster you know and uh, like like just like I guess like seeing how you know explosive behavior you know can like damage you know can like damage a relationship or like complicate things and and just like you know how when you're in a band you know with a bunch of other people like you know um you know, there's going to be stuff that comes along that, you know, not everybody's going to, that not everybody's going to agree on. And like, you know, yeah, sometimes you're going to fight, uh, you're going to fight about stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, hmm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of like a good way to, to phrase this. Cause I'm thinking, I'm thinking in particular of the scene in some kind of monster when, um, 
when James was either going to, I think it was when he had just gotten back from rehab and Lars is like, kind of like yelling in his face. Right. Like I remember that scene like pretty, pretty dramatically and just like, just the tension, I guess, in the air of that, you know, that moment, like is, it is something that, you know, I guess like I've come not necessarily relating to like, you know, substance or anything like that, but like I've been in situations, you know, with my band where things have gotten like mega, mega tense. Right. And uh, you know, like things have gotten heated and like dudes have gotten very angry at each other, you know? Um, And like, I guess like, just like, you know, being able to, remember like why we're why we're doing this you know like i said like having this like you know this band that like we all kind of believe in this like universal goal like no matter like how much we argue and fight about stuff or or how hard things get or you know tour gets canceled or show goes poorly or whatever we were mad at each other about this or that that like you know always kind of considering this kind of like greater this thing that's bigger than the some some of its parts i guess or however that saying goes you know just kind of considering that which is like which is what i'm sure all those guys were thinking about during that time you know that was probably the only thing that they were holding on to because it seems like you know shit was real bleak during that period for metallica i mean you know with james being i mean james is he's the he's the front man he's a singer you know he's it's James, you know what I mean? And like, he was like really hurting during that time. And like, that was probably an insanely difficult time for that band and, you know, not knowing what the future was going to hold, not knowing if they were going to be able to continue being Metallica. Right. It's a terrifying, it's a terrifying thing, you know, I mean, you know, terrifying watching it, but I'm sure it was a bazillion times more terrifying for the guys that are in the band. It's like their whole, that's everything. Right. Um, You know, so I think, you know, conflict resolution is is something that i've like kind of learned a lot about and just kind of like mutual respect for for band members you know and and realizing that it's okay to like argue with each other you know just as long as it's like out of respect and like kind of you know out of the greater good for what you're you're all working towards i guess and i think seeing like those harder more difficult moments in those metallica videos um i guess just like like I said, it taught, it, it taught me a lot about what to expect. And like, I guess when those things came along, you know, instead of just like being childish about it and like oh, giving up or like, you know, holding a grudge or whatever, just kind of like working it out, you know, like, and like talk, having like open dialogue, you know, if I'm being an asshole, I want you to tell me just like, you know, uh, you know, if you're being one, you know, I'm going to tell you, like, we, we have to like, we're in a steel can with each other, you know, for, you know, 18 hours a day or whatever, like the, roll, the rolling coffin or the, or as uh, Zach Wilde calls it the submarine. Yes, exactly. You know, so like we all share this like living space together. we spend so much time together. Like it would be nice if everything was all like friendly and like, you know, roses and sunshine all the time, but being real here, it's not always like that. You're going to argue, but like, there's a healthy way to do that, you know? And like, I think that the further along I get with this, the older I get, the older we all get, Uh, the better we get at it. And I think a lot of it goes back to like, you know, the lessons that I learned from just like watching these bands, you know, like work out their shit with each other. It was like deeply, you know, uh, it it was a good learning lesson for me. And it's something that I I still hold on to, Um, you know, and as far as like, 
yeah, as far as like uh, production and, and playing and whatnot, I mean, just the, the level of precision that those guys were, you know, playing at, you know, like, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of those like isolated, you know, James guitar tracks, you know, come up recently, like they'll pop up on my YouTube recommendants and just like, you know, now knowing, you know, how highly edited and like, kind of like sneaky, everything has gotten with like the, you know, progress of technology and the ability to kind of like, you know, uh, play a player, players, your stuff sort of half-assed and make it sound amazing. Um, listening back to like those recordings and knowing that these guys did this shit to tape and it sounds like it was like, you know, James's rhythm tracks sound like they were, you know, edited to a grid, but they're not, it's tape. Right. And I think that's like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the lead guitar player in my band, but like, I think, I think James, uh, even though he's not, you know, the, the lead guitar player in Metallica, I think he's, he's the guy that like had like the biggest impact on me as a player, just because like, you know, I grew up really wanting to learn how to play solos a lot. Like I wanted to shred, you know, and, and all that. And like, I spent a lot of my time working on lead stuff. And when I, you know, I guess like when I really dove into Metallica and like paid extra close attention to like what James was doing on top of singing, uh, you know, his playing, it just how locked in and tight he was like, it kind of just gave me like this uh, real profound respect for like, you know, the craft of like rhythm guitar playing and like how important it is to like, even as a lead guy, you know, to have like a super, super strong, you know, uh, you know, rhythm, rhythm side of your playing. So like James, you know, and just his whole, his whole, you know, setup, man. I mean, he's like, you know, where's the guitar low had, the, you know, had the, the hair, you know, the, you know, no shirt, the explorer. I, I, like I believe I've heard him refer to it as his satanic stance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stance, yeah. Yeah. Me, me and, uh, me and, me and Wes always, we call him a uh, King regs because like, um, he wears his guitar at regulation height, like down low enough. Cause like you see guys that wear them like way up here, you know, James has it down way down low. Like he's, he's that's good regulation height, you know? So we call him King regs because he, uh, he wears his guitar down low like that and uh, just looks real, real killer, you know? So like, yeah, he's just, uh, you know, James has been a, a huge influence on, on my playing, you know, sp specifically rhythm playing and just like, yeah, just like, uh, you know, being a being a guitar player man i mean he's he's just the he's the full package you know he's a he's a rock star you know and um yeah so like he uh yeah you know i i learned a lot about like just you know tightening up my playing and like just being you know dedicating myself to like rhythm guitar playing and not just becoming like one of those you know guitar players that's like you know well i'm better at this i'm more of a lead guy or more of a rhythm guy like i wanted the whole spectrum you know and i think james was like real important in like rounding me out as a player i guess and you know all the you know production stuff like being able to play your parts you know that's that's it sounds funny even saying it out loud but like there's so many bands out there that you know never play in a room together you know before a record comes out and like you know so we, many especially now even yeah. even to the point where it's um it's weird for a lot of bands not you know to not do it that <laughs> I'm, I'm stumbling over my grammar here but you know what i'm trying to say it's like it, yeah. it's it's so the norm to do it the more quote-unquote modern way that it's strange for bands to get in a room and 
play everything together. You know, so many records are just created in the studio. I mean, obviously, St. Anger being a record like that. Yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, you know, yeah. it's James and Lars going through the riff tapes and some Kirk's riff tapes and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, Lars doing some arranging. I mean, Enter Sandman is the classic example where it's this Kirk riff. And yeah. then Lars was like, what if we move this here and did it this way? Yeah. And then it's this, you know, massive song. Uh, it, you know, yeah, it's very old school, that approach, because now it's a lot of, for better or worse, not to even put a value judgment on it, but now it's a lot of people doing stuff on their laptop in their place and, you know, giving a Dropbox link to another person in the band that lives in a different state. And, uh, you know, this stuff being sort of assembled that way. And then, yeah, like you were saying, the song doesn't even get played as a band until you're about to go tour your record that's already finished. Yeah. And that goes back to the chemistry thing, because, I mean, I think I think sitting in a room with your drummer, you know, I think that's like the most important thing that like any band dude could do is just like sit in a room specific, like particularly with the drummer, because that's the backbone of the band. You know what I mean? And just like be able to hash out how riffs are going to feel when they're like stacked next to each other. Right. Like you could write stuff in a vacuum and just kind of like piece a song together, you know, riff by riff or whatever. But like, you really want to be in a room and like, feel how that stuff, like, you know, all goes together. And then like, you know, I feel like, yeah, you know, a certain, certain part of that art has been lost in modern times, you know, and, and even more so now with like all the lockdowns and everything, it's even harder for people to like, you know, get in the same room with one another. So like, yeah, deep, massive respect for like, you know, all the bands that did it that way. Cause like, I feel like, yeah, that just adds an even more personal touch to, to, you know, the music when like it's being, you know, it's being like uh, created in real time like that, you know, two human beings interacting with one another and just like the chemistry and everything. It's like, you know, huge part of it for sure. Absolutely, man. Well, dude, this has been um, awesome. I knew you were going to be an amazing guest. Uh, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else that we should get into that was on your, on your mind Metallica wise? Uh, well, I mean, uh, n nothing like really serious or anything. I, I mean, I just had a, I remember I had one short, funny story. I wore a, I had the ride the lightning shirt that I'm sure, you know, everybody's probably owned at some point or another with the glowed in the dark with like the guy getting shocked on the back of it, you know, and, uh, got a, got a suspended for wearing that to school one time because my teacher thought that, uh, I was, uh, an evil, an evil, uh, person for, for having such a, graphic image on my shirt uh, so yeah i got thrown out of class for wearing a metallica shirt she wanted me to turn it inside out but i wouldn't took the suspension so there you go <laughs> i love it dude and that and dude that's what it's all about is taking that suspension yeah. and i want to give a shout out to my oldest friend that i'm still in daily contact with matt reese who hopefully made it this far into this episode so he can hear me shout out him getting sent home from school for wearing a uh like an orange sport coat with yeah. a, a, yeah, it was, it was, it was a whole thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, dude, getting busted for wearing the wrong stuff. And I love that that's a, a continuing generational thing because uh, Andy Beersack from Blackville, he's the same age as you. Yeah. And he, he got in trouble for wearing, uh, I think the color green, he wore a dropkick Murphy shirt and like what? green wasn't allowed at school for some reason. Like, yeah, it's a whole thing so wild <laughs> shout out to uh people who continue <laughs> to get in take trouble the, for wearing the wrong clothes take the suspension yeah <laughs> take the suspension yeah that's the lesson to be learned well dude uh this is killer 
and yeah. you are definitely somebody I would love to have back. Uh, so sure. far, there's only been a couple of uh, repeats. Doc Coyle is my three-peat guest. Nice. And uh, Andrew Carter's been on twice, three times, actually, maybe him. But uh, but yeah, I'd love to have you back, man. And yeah, you can get more love anytime you want. I'd, lo- I'd love to come back, man. I had a blast talking about all this stuff. It's good to meet you. And yeah, hopefully uh, see you soon sometime, sometime in the future. 